it's Marissa Lee here, and I'm so excited to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. In these episodes, our brilliant lineup of guests will include healthcare practitioners, voice educators, and other professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to empower you to live your best life. Whether you're a member of the voice community or beyond, your voice is your unique gift. It's time now to share your gift with others, develop a positive mindset and become the best and most authentic version of yourself to create greater impact. Ultimately, you can take charge. It's time for you to live your best life. It's time now for A Voice and Beyond. So, without further ado, let's go to today's episode. As someone from the creative and performing arts industry, I know that the business side of what we do is often the most challenging and most overlooked. Our finances are usually geared towards investing in professional development with a specific focus on improving our skill set and talent, and there is little or no investment in building our understanding of how we can generate a sustainable income in a creative industry. This week on A Voice and Beyond, I am delighted to welcome Miriam Schulman, who is an artist, author, and host of the podcast, The Inspiration Place, which is listened to in more than 100 countries around the world and is currently in the top 0.5% of most listened to podcasts globally. Miriam is also the founder and creator of the Artist Incubator Coaching Program, a program where she has helped thousands of artists around the world develop their skill sets and learn how to generate six-figure incomes from their passion. Recently, Miriam released her new book, Artpreneur, the step-by-step guide to making a sustainable living from your creativity. In this episode, Miriam discusses her brilliant book and some of her strategies and principles that have been proven to help creatives grow a thriving business, her practical tips on marketing, scaling and pricing, guidance on how to develop the right mindset in business, and why selling in alignment with your core values creates more sales. So if you are keen to improve your bottom line in your creative business or beyond, this interview with Miriam Schulman is not to be missed. So without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Welcome to A Voice and Beyond. We have a very special guest today, Miriam Schulman. How are you? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. I am too, because you and I 
we're, we're in different fields, but we're both creatives and we share a lot of the same philosophies around what we're going to talk about today. And that is being an entrepreneur. I love the way that uh, you describe what we are. We, we are creatives who make money from their art and that makes us art, artpreneurs. <laughs> Yes. I think I'm saying it right. Yeah. I mean, it's a made up word and other people make up different words like artrepreneur, but art, I like artpreneur. I love that. I love that. And that kind of creates a whole different mindset around what we do. And, and we're going to start off though with some of your story because you are an artist and author of this brilliant book that I have received that I'm just loving and I shared with Miriam that I don't read books. I, I'm more of an audio book person because I don't like sitting for too long. But this book here is definitely one that I'm going to be reading. So well done on that. And host of the podcast, The Inspiration Place, which is listened to in more than 100 countries around the world and is in the top 0.5 percent of podcasts globally and you're also the founder and creator of the artist incubator coaching program well Miriam congratulations on all your success what an achievement thank you so much as you know there's like a lot of blood and sweat and tears and courage that goes into that there is people don't realize do they? they? They don't realize how much work and effort and courage goes into what we all do. And now you're a creative, but you actually started your career on Wall Street. So how did you end up on Wall Street? Because I know that you had this love of art at a very young age. So what happened? What derailed you from becoming an artist early on? Well, first of all, my father passed away when I was five years old. So I saw my mother who, you know, she was a child of the 1950s and she was taught women grow up to be wives. Uh. <laughs> and she left college to marry my father. She did finish college later, but we really struggled uh, after my father died, you know, we, we were on social security, we were on food stamps. I mean, we really struggled. And then my mother's answer was to get married again. So, which was not a great marriage. So I always had this very strong knowledge that I wanted to be, or this belief that I, or goal to be financially independent that was that was something that I knew I needed for my own survival. Now, I was being told that I wouldn't make money as an artist. And I believed that. I believed that for a very long time. So I figured, well, if the point is to make money, where do they make money? They make money on Wall Street. Yeah. And that, that so that was the, the path that led me there. But I, I worked for a, a very famous infamous, let's say, trading desk on Wall Street, and then hedge fund that blew up famously. I took a break from that. And after 9-11 happened, so around right before that, I think, oh, maybe I'll go back. I'll put back on the pantyhose because that's what we wore back in the, yes. you know, in the 90s. Yes. 
I'll put that back on. I'll trade my sweat up, uh, my spit on sweatshirts with for like my Ann Taylor clothes again. And so right about the time I was fantasizing about going back and there was nothing to fantasize about, believe me. I mean, there was like, I was sexually harassed while I was there. I, you know, all the things, all the things mm-hmm. that many women experience, mm-hmm. but I wasn't remembering that. I was just remembering, okay, I just want to look pretty again and, and be out in the world. And around that time, that's when 9-11 happened. And I took that as, oh, all right. This is a sign from the universe not to go back. I hadn't figured it out then, but I knew I wasn't going to go back to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Like I knew that in like my soul, my soul, yes. my bones. And I right now we're living for through a very similar time for people that the pandemic has been an awakening for many people. That's why millions have walked away from their jobs. They called this the great resignation. And literally because there's nothing like a crisis to lift the veil over what's not working in your life mm-hmm. and really to help force you to reevaluate those existential questions. Why are we here? Why are you here? Yes. And it was not to make money on Wall Street. That's for sure. Mm. So at what point then did you decide, okay, I'm not going to go back to Wall Street and now I'm going to Start dabbling in my art because you started with your artwork at school. Your teacher identified that you were an artist. And so then did you think, oh, okay, well, maybe I can make some money from this? There's several things that I want to unpack here. Sure. So the first thing is about my teacher identifying me as an artist. So I start off the first chapter, first chapters choose to believe. And my teacher did say, you're the class artist. Now, I don't know that there was any special quote unquote air quotes talent that she actually saw. What really happened was she said, I'm an artist and I believed her. Of course, she was an authority figure. That's right. I believed her. And that was really what motivated me to be an artist was like, I, somebody said it and I believed them. Mm-hmm. So that's why I started off with, like, with that ch- choice of belief. And I know that you feel strongly about this as well. It's not about the talent. No, it definitely is like, What not- even does that mean? Like it's not even a meaningful thing. Yeah. We all know very, quote, very talented people in any industry. So singing, business, art, whatever it is, very talented people not succeeding. And people who we look at, it's like, I don't know what's so great about her, who are very successful. Exactly. There's people in the singing world, uh, in the music industry, who are not great singers, but they make bucket loads of money. And then there are other people who are amazing singers, but they can't seem to make a career out of it. Exactly. Exactly. I know. All right. So, but I do want to answer all the questions there. Sure. So now, all right. So I knew I wasn't going to go back to Wall Street like that. I knew and I didn't. I just still didn't believe I could make a living as an artist. So what I did at first was I was painting, um, I was creating portraits, but I took a job as a Pilates instructor. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) just because. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I needed to make money. And I knew I, I didn't, I didn't have it figured out. Sure. I didn't have it figured out. 
So when I took the job at the gym, they actually had uh, us go through training on how to close sales on personal training packages. And I just moved to New York City recently and I was going to the gym and and they were trying to use those same techniques on me. Mm -hmm. So like, why is this important to you? You know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, why do you want to do this? And why is that important to you? So when I got that training on how to do sales, how to follow up with customers, I had this aha moment. It's like, oh, of course, these are sales techniques. I can use them to sell my portraits. And that's when I became a student of marketing. And I've never stopped learning since then. I'm always looking at how can I learn how to sell better and understand the sale. So that that is really like what is in this book is like really understanding yes. the psychology and the anatomy of what goes into selling. Yeah. What is really interesting out of everything that you just said, like the the... I think the thing that I was not expecting you to say was that you learned all your sales and marketing techniques from working in the gym as a Pilates instructor and not from Wall Street. That's right. I learned some things on Wall Street that I like now when I look back, I can give credit to, but I was not in a sales job there. The one thing I did learn there, especially as a woman on Wall Street, was Mm. the importance of marketing myself. So this is not something I do, I talk about in the book, but I've been, I've been thinking a lot about lately was how I, the first year I was there. So this is again about the whole talent. The first year I was there, I worked really hard. I was I was very good at what I did. And at the end of the year, they no one seemed to know what I knew what I did. So what were you doing? Well, I was I was programming and I was I was creating these things, but like my boss's boss, who are the ones who decide who gets the raises and who gets the bonuses and blah, blah, blah. They didn't really seem to know. So the <laughs> second year I was there. I did not rely on my boss to tell my boss, the boss's boss, you know, like what I did. Every month, I basically put out a newsletter for myself about what I had done. So self-promotion. That's correct. That's correct. So I would do that. I would also show up to a meeting that was seven o'clock New York time. Why was it seven o'clock, seven o'clock a.m. New York time? Why? Because it was a global finance firm and they had to meet when Tokyo and London and New York could all get together. Now, what was I doing at that meeting? Nothing. I was showing my face. I was getting to know the people who mattered in the room so they would know who I was at the end of the year when they decided who got who got the bigger bonus. And I would show up at the end of the trading day around 4.30. I did not wait for my boss to tell me what needed to be done. I would go at four, you know, at the end of the day at 4.30, I would show up on that trading floor. And and, and back in 1990, whatever it was, the, the trading floor was basically like walking into the male's locker room. Mm-hmm. Like you just had that that crackling energy. Like you felt like someone's going to snap a towel at you any moment. Yeah. Not that anyone did that. Not that anyone hit me on the ass or anything. Are we allowed to talk that way on your podcast? Yeah. It's not that that actually happened, but it was that energy was there. Yeah. That, you know, that yeah. feeling like I was going and... And it is ballsy to go to your boss's boss, by the way. Like it's like jumping levels. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Guess what? It worked. At the end of the year, I was promoted. I got like this mega bonus. And that was really marketing myself. So those like yeah. those foundational pieces, that is something I did learn how to do there. I'm literally dying here because. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I love that story. There's something. Can I just quickly share a story? You and I have Please. some incredible similarities. As I, you know, as a woman also, I've had one office job and I was there for two years. And it was with the state government in Victoria, in a different state here in Australia. And I don't know if you watch Seinfeld, but every day. Okay, so <laughs> literally, we <laughs> do you remember the episode with George Costanza and the Penske file? He literally had a file that it was called the Penske file, and there was nothing in it. Oh, yes. And they were like, did you make progress on it? And he didn't had no idea what he's supposed to be doing with it. That was me. <laughs> that was me in this government job, right? And I literally walked around with this Penske file that I, <laughs> for two years and just kept showing up that we had five floors we in, in this building. And I would literally walk from floor to floor to floor with my Penske file and I kept getting promoted and I was doing nothing. I had no idea. No one trained me in my job, but I just walked around with this for two years and kept getting promoted. And when I saw that episode with George Costanza and that Penske file, I died. And listening to you, you actually were doing something, but I was doing nothing other than walking around with this empty file and just turning up and dressing up. But, but here's the thing. That's just showing how the marketing is more important than the talent. Yes. 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 Because that, that's what it is. Yeah. You were marketing. Yeah. You were, you were basically, you know, yeah. So uh, that's why I was sitting here dying when you were telling me that story. It reminded me of my days of working in the government. Hilarious. And it was so boring. And people there thought they were the hardest working people in the world. And they literally all walked around with Penske files probably. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just kept showing up, dressed up for work, immaculately carried myself, walked around like I owned the place. Yep. So anyway, we're, we're straying from the conversation, but I just had to share that. I was thinking, this is Part great. It's important. I mean, yeah. like this is branding. Yeah. <laughs> you were very well branded. You knew how oh. to be the brand of like. My own brand. <laughs> that's right yeah yeah but anyway let, let's get back to this I want to talk about your training program okay but before that at what point of time did you give yourself permission then to go into that that business of selling your art okay so basically pretty much right after I got the the Pilates training uh, it wasn't Pilates training they were training me on the sales part piece of it so the Pilates training was separate they're training me on the sales piece and they and one of the instructors even recommended a book and I went and got the book and the book had nothing to do with gyms it was just sell it so that's why I was like of course of course I could use this for for my art because it didn't it didn't matter what you were selling basically yeah and pretty much that same year that's when I everything started clicking for me and if I had any doubts that I should be only selling my art the universe 
definitely wanted to keep me out of the gym. So back to back, I had uh, appendicitis and then I had a broken toe. So there was like, there was basically one thing after that, the universe kept saying, you are not doing this. There's something else for you to do here. Clearly. It's like, Houston, we have a problem and you got to get out of here. That's right. <laughs> oh, okay. So then you decided you would start working. Oh, then I, w- I was all in. I was all in. I quit working at the gym. Um, I quit all those those little jobs I had, I had taken that I thought I needed. Mm-hmm. And I was all in on selling my portraits. Yeah. And, and the first... Uh, I would say first five to 10 years, that was mostly guerrilla marketing. So what what do I mean by that? It, mm. it, I, didn't, I didn't have an email list yet. I didn't know about the email list yet, which is very important. But what I would do is like, I would take the portrait of my son, I would stick it in the hallway in the foyer. So when parents came to pick up their children from my house, when there was play dates, they would see it. Oh, that's so clever. And my son was very good influencer for me. He was a very good influence marketer. I didn't put him up to this, but you know, he's four or five years old and he would, he would say to his friends, look at this painting of me. You know, I painted him in his Batman costume. Who's so proud of it. Look at this painting of me. And they were impressed. And so they would say, mom, look at this painting of Seth. So it was like a beautiful thing. I would get the commission and then I would do the same exact thing though. I would expand it by the mother would say, oh, um, can I come by? I would let them know. It's, call them up. Let them know. It's, we use phones back then as phones. They yes. would call, 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 we call each other. Remember that? We yeah. call, call, <laughs> call up. Oh, um, the painting set. And they'd be like, oh, can I pick it up? I was like, no, no, no. Don't, bo- don't worry about it. I'll bring it to pick up. Why? You know, it's just like what I did in Wall Street. It's like, so everyone can see the painting being delivered. You know, they see the painting and they're looking, you know, this is where my customers are, the other mothers. Yeah, yeah. And now they get to see it. So we didn't have Instagram back then. So at what point then did you transition to other modes of selling? So I I went online um, with eBay and my website, and I would say that was about 30% of my my income uh, was doing that. And the other 60% was commissioned portraits and also my fine art that I was selling, uh, you know, in person at at art fair. So it was like 30% online, 60% in person. But what happened was in about 2012 or 2013, Somebody on Etsy reached out to me and says, I really like your art. Do you teach online art classes? Oh, wow. Okay. And I had never heard, like, it doesn't, like, it's only 10 years ago, but like, my God, dog years when we were talking about online. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 years ago, it's like, mm. it doesn't seem so long, but really, I mean, the whole world has changed. Yeah. So uh, that is, that was my first like introduction to the idea. But remember, I didn't have an email list. And I naively thought all I had to do was post on Instagram. And that's back when people saw our posts. I thought that's all what I thought all we had to do. And that did not work. So that's <laughs> when that's when I I did take some training from people in the online space on how to build an email list and how to build those more complicated sales funnels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how quickly did that income grow once you transitioned to all the online stuff? Did that make a significant difference to your turnover? 
Yes, because not only... So since that time, I've sold over a million dollars in online art classes, by the way. I think it's like $1.3 million in online art classes. Wow. However, uh, what also happened is now I was able to use those techniques that I learned how to sell online classes. Now I was using it to also sell my art. Mm-hmm. So I was using an email list to sell my art. I like... all everything exploded then because I didn't understand how important an email list was until then. And then now it's like everything. Yes. And do, do you want to talk about that for, yes, our, yes, for the listeners? Yes, okay. Yes, because you do have a program that's called the Artists Incubator Coaching Program. And I'm assuming these are some of the things that you teach people through the program. Absolutely. But what I really want your listeners to hear is because so many people have have believe they drank the Kool-Aid that they just need to post on social media Mm -hmm. and they don't understand why they need an email list. And they think email list is dead and social media is where it's at. And it couldn't be further from the truth. No, We've actually now reached a place where it's the other way around. Social media is like Thelma and Louise about to drive off a cliff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so hit and miss. I don't understand why you share something on social and you get thousands of views and then the next day you get five. Yeah, well, like it's no, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but no, but you're not. It is so hit and miss. Okay. So here is what the data shows. So when I started writing the book, I knew it was a problem. When I started writing the book, the average engagement rate on Instagram was 1%. By the time I went to edit that section of the book in early 2022, and now we're a full year later, early 2022, the average engagement rate had fallen to 0.6%. What does that mean? That means out of a thousand people, only six people are going to engage with that post. What about all these people who are saying to us, I will teach you how to increase your engagement. We have lots of those people, right? Yeah. Maybe some of them have been on this podcast. Yeah, but I I actually get them reaching out to me every single day. Every day. Every day. Okay. All right. And then we all know the guru is saying the same things. The average engagement rate of an influencer is 1.12%. Yeah, it's better, but it's still not good. It's still, that means out of a thousand people, only 11 people are paying attention to them. Wow. Wow. Now let's compare that to email because this is the really important yes. thing that I want people yes. to hear. Yes. So for email, and we're only talking about averages on email, the average open rate is 24%. 24%. That means if you have 100 people on your email list, 24 people will see it and open it. So now let's make this the same. How many people do you need on Instagram to get the same results as email? For email, 100 people, 24 people will open it and engage with it. To get the same result on Instagram, you need 4,000 people to get 24 people to engage with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but that's a, it's a lot of work to build yeah. 4,000 people versus 100. Yeah. Well, I'm really happy that you shared those statistics because at present I have someone that's helping me build on my email list. You know, uh, I'm not going to share numbers, but 
my engagement is probably twice or three times or people opening higher than that average. My, my opening rate is really good. Based on what you've just said, then obviously I'm doing well in that area. Yeah. If you have a four, if you have double, if you have a 40% open rate, you are gold. Yeah. It's actually even higher than that. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So no, that's incredible. So at least that's really good to know. Okay. Yeah. So how do people then build their email list? If it's that important, how do they build it and what do they do with it? Okay. So that's what people ask me. And first of all, if you, if you know what you're doing on Instagram, that's the, that's the same thing you send an email. And, and like, yeah. I also get questions, wait, so should it be different? I'm posting on Instagram, what should I put in my email? I was like, we just said to you that nobody's seeing what you're posting on Instagram. Mm. Would it the same? And we always flatter ourselves. We think everyone's seeing everything we do in all the places. Mm. They're not seeing it all. Mm-mm. Like I have, I have a cousin who says, well, I'm sure you saw the, um, the picture of, you know, her daughter on Facebook. It's like, no, I didn't see that. Like no. what makes you think I saw anything? I haven't been on Facebook in weeks. Yeah. Or as some of us, we have people that do that for us. They do our posting for us. That's right. So it's not us. <laughs> right. It looks like I'm there. I'm not. No, we're, they're posting stuff on our behalf. They're not, some of them are not necessarily engaging with other posts on any level, but they are just simply putting work forward that represents us and therefore people think that we we are the ones that are on Facebook. That's true. Or Instagram. That is true. W- one more thing I just wanted to share about Instagram. Sure. So it's not just about the algorithms being quote unquote evil. That's not even what this is about. Uh, everyone blames the algorithms. No, well, there's two, there's two things I want to point out. The first thing I want to call is the death of the scroll. Oh, <laughs> Can you say squirrel again? Scroll. 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 <laughs> I love it. I have a New York accent. So no, luckily you, you like Seinfeld. You don't mind listening to me. I, I just love, I just love, I have another American friend and he has squirrels in his backyard and I just oh, love squirrels. Squirrels. <laughs> this is, so I'm saying scroll. So like the, the swiping. Yeah. Whereas we say squirrels. Okay. Okay. All right. So whether you're on Reels or TikTok, if you if it's you or if you've seen somebody, all they're doing is with like, I don't, the people on the podcast can't see me, but the people on um, YouTube, mm-hmm. I'm just swiping my finger up, 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 up. When you're on one of those platforms, they don't even want you to finish watching the video. They want you on to the next video. So what does that mean for the content creator that you're, the people watching you, they're not stopping to click on your call to action. They're not visiting your profile. I had a client who had a reel go pretty much viral. She had 47,000 views on it, but nobody visited her profile. Like you can see on the, on the insights, like maybe she got five, maybe she got five new followers Mm. and no sales. Mm -hmm. That's not worth it. Mm-hmm. On, on TikTok, you can follow somebody and never see their content ever again. And that's why th- that building that huge following on TikTok, like there's, there's people with these huge following on TikToks. Like there was, 
somebody, my publisher reached out to me and, and he said, well, she has half a million TikTok followers. I said, I don't care. How big is her email list? Yeah. Yeah. They wanted me, they wanted me to put her on my podcast and email about her. I was like, she said, well, she'll put you on TikTok. It's like, so Mm. (laughs) what? It doesn't do it. I might as well, you can put a billboard in Times Square for all I care. It doesn't matter how many people see it. Yeah. So true. So with your coaching program, I would say that obviously it's been highly influenced by all the lessons that you've learned through your journey of becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah. And you help other creatives make six-figure incomes. Yes. From from their art or from their their craft as an a creative artist. What is the biggest mistake do you believe that creatives make? And what is the reason that they don't achieve the level of success that you have? Yeah. Okay. So there, there's five areas that I identify in the book Artpreneur and that I also teach in my coaching program. Mm-hmm. Um, there's production, pricing, prospecting, promotion, and productivity. Yeah. And usually there's a problem in one of those areas. Now, what most often happens is that they know they have a problem and they've misidentified the problem. For example, we've talked a lot about social media today because that's where people think it's at. People Mm. will come to me, I just need a bigger audience. And I said, well, maybe that's not the problem. The problem is it's usually something else. Either they are selling something that is a low cost item, like don't laugh, a handmade greeting card for $10 that takes them like half. I mean, but but literally this is not just artists. Really, yes. it's across all industries. They're making something that is very time-consuming compared to what it is that they are charging, a very low-profit item, so low-profit yeah. thinking. And can I just butt in? With teachers, they're selling their time Yes, at a very low cost. Yes. For, for the skills and the knowledge and the education they've had. That's right. And, and the level of their teaching. So one of, one of the things I do put in there, I'm from the visual world and I mostly work with visual artists, mm. but I did put in their case studies in the book of musicians I do. who like, and I show you the different examples, what, what it would look like if you're charging a premium price versus a, a low price. What would it look I like if that. you made it into a group class? What would that look like? And it's showing people how you can really scale back your time. And that's the part in the book. There you go. I've got it here. So just like I did comparing, let's compare it. Let's do the math. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. like I did with the Instagram and the email. I'll show you the math of like, and there's so many people who just don't do that math problem. Like I've had a lot of people come to me over the years. Oh, the problem is I just don't, I just need to find more people who want my handmade greeting card or sticker or whatever it is. I was like, no, that's not the problem. Stop making handmade greeting cards. Make something else. Make something that's more that's more profitable because if you're selling something for $10 and you want to make $50,000, which even then, you know, that's not even a lot of money, you you need to find 5,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you're selling something for $1,000, now you to make the same money, you only need 50 people. If you're selling something for $5,000, you only need make sell 10 of them. 
Mm. So it's you quickly mm. see that it's less work. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't want to go off track, but how much of that is their own self-worth and how much of it is they just don't know that? Like it's a knowledge, it's it's a, a gap in their knowledge and their training to know that you can actually create something that has a greater profit margin and how much of it is around their own self-belief and their own self-value and self-worth that, oh, I couldn't possibly charge that because no one's going to buy something that I make or something that I, a service I'm providing at that amount of money. It's all of those things. And, and so, so many people talk about the believing in yourself, the believing in your art, and this is what I call the belief triad. What they don't talk about is the third part of that belief triad, which is belief in the customer. Because mm. here's the thing, Marissa, let's just take the example from my world. If I wanted to sell you a painting for $5,000, I can believe in myself and I can believe in this painting. But if I don't believe in you, you're not going to buy that painting. And here's why. What's going through your mind is not whether Miriam Shulman is worth $5,000. It's not worth Miriam's... Shulman's painting is worth 5,000. What you're trying to decide, Marissa, is if you are worth, if you feel that you're worth investing $5,000 in to get this painting that you want. Now, if I lose sight of that, I will sabotage the sale. If I'm thinking it's all making it all about me, I will sabotage the sale. And if I have any uncertainty about whether you're going to invest in yourself, if I don't believe in you and love you even more than you do yourself, you will you will have doubts about investing in yourself. That's the piece that people lose sight of. And I think that is a really important piece, not from the perspective you're talking about, but it kind of takes the pressure off us because we tend to make everything about us and That's about right. ourselves, like we're a failure, we're not worthy, we're not blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> we carry so much baggage so it's kind of a way too of releasing some of those shackles and that baggage. That's right. And taking the pressure off ourselves because ultimately as humans, we want to be rescuing everybody else and we kind of then go into some kind of rescue mode or, you know, I love you, let's make it about you kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, there's, I don't know if you're at that part of the book yet, but I include an overcoming objections chart for people who are in sales. And the reason I include that is not to get yes at any cost. It's so that you can learn to understand and have compassion for where they're at in their buying journey. What is going through their mind? I loved that part of the book. I haven't had the book very long. I haven't had it long enough to have a good read of it. But I loved, like, let's just do a quick role play. I don't want to get bogged down in anything too much because I literally have a million questions for you. But I love the part where, you know, you give different responses. So maybe ask me and I'll be the customer. Let's just see. Let's just role play an objection and how you <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> okay. So I'm selling you this painting. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, now the role playing, I'm going to be the good salesperson, right? Not yes. the bad salesperson. Be the good one. Okay. So how would you like to pay for this? 
Um, I'm not really sure. I just have to check to see how much I have in my bank account. I may need to use my credit card. Good. I'll take credit card. <laughs> I, I, I think it's like, I don't even get there with, with most people because I'm not, I'm not like believing their own bullshit. So (laughs) no, here's the thing that I want the listeners to understand. It's never that my, your customers are lying to you. They are usually lying to themselves. Uh Uh And this is what we need to all stop doing as well, because it's very disempowering. It's so easy for somebody to say, I can't afford it. It's too expensive. We're, We're conditioned to believe that's the polite thing to say. That is so disempowering. And I want Mm. everyone listening to stop saying, I can't afford it. Mm -hmm. Say the truth. And that doesn't mean you have to buy everything, Mm -hmm. but say the truth. The truth is you choose not to. Yeah. Yeah. Have that agency over your choice. Yeah. I choose not to invest my money that way. Or I choose not to spend that amount on these things. Or I choose not to make this a priority at this time. So then if you're a singing teacher, I know this is not your, I mean, you're basically dealing with products, but let's just say I'm a singing teacher and I'm charging, let's just say $150 an hour. And I have a potential student that rings up and says, oh, I'm really, I really want to have lessons with you how much your lessons and I say they're $150 an hour and you get, wow, that's really expensive. Oh, there's a teacher down the road that's only charging 120. What do you say to that person? I mean, because this is actually a real thing that happens with people in private studio. Okay. So, you know, you don't want to compete with people on price. You can see that Walmart was just unseated by Amazon. There's no competing with price. So what you need to make the experience of even that sales conversation less transactional. If it got to the price so quickly, then it was a transactional conversation. You want to keep the focus on what it is that they want to solve, what is their wet dreams? Um, Not just their problems. Too many uh-huh. people talk about problems. Uh-huh. We have to talk about what is their fantasy. Uh-huh. Future pace them into their fantasy of what they want to achieve. And if you need to, then talk about other students that have done the same thing. Now, I saw people doing this at the gym. So it's like, it's hilarious to me now that I've had, you know, 20 years later, I'm going to sign up for a gym. And everything I say, they're they're like using all the sales techniques on me. It's like, oh, I know what you're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. for example, just to make it like very clear for um, your listeners who maybe are vocal coaches. Mm. So I went into the gym and mostly I wanted to sign up for the gym because my bathroom is broken and I need a good place to take a shower. <laughs> so so I'm telling this to the the gym salesperson and he's like, yes. Many people join the gym for that reason. No matter what I said, it was like, yes, we have a lot of clients who do that. He kept reinforcing that the reason that I wanted to join was a good idea. Okay. Even when I was saying these ridiculous things, like I, I just, I just want to see your locker room. 
You know, like, and he was he was coming up with more examples. Oh yeah, we have a lot of people who are students, and they 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 really want you know. I live in New York City, so you know, as people have very small apartments with lots of roommates, blah blah blah. So whatever it was, it was like reinforcing my own reasons. So a lot of the sales is about listening to what your customer wants and then reinforcing what they want. They will not make it about the $30 price difference if they know that you understand them and you listen to them. So true. How much of it is listening? It is so true. Now, let's get back to what are some of the other steps that you use in that five-step program? Okay. So we talked about production and pricing. Those two Mm -hmm. things work hard hand in hand. And a lot of what I talk about in Artpreneur is, well, what is it you're making and how is it marketable? And that's when we talk about in chapter six, embrace your inner weirdo. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want me to share some some of that vocal stuff. Yes. I'd love for you to do that. Yes. Okay. So first of all, let's talk about why, why do I even call it weird? Mm -hmm. Why do I even call it weird? Why do you call it weird? <laughs> okay. So, and, and the word weird in, in Scotland actually used to mean fate or destiny or even magical. So that's why in Shakespeare's Macbeth, the three witches were the weird sisters. Weird only took on a negative connotation when the supernatural became vilified. So over the centuries, as the supernatural became vilified, the word weird took on a negative connotation. But that is not the origin of the word weird. The origin of the word weird is fate, destiny, magical. When you are embracing what is weird about you, you're embracing your fate, you're embracing your destiny, you're embracing what's magical about you. So I, you are giving me permission to call myself a weirdo. Please. And I can give myself permission to call myself a weirdo, even though I've always thought I was one anyway. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's not that I'm giving you permission because you probably already did it, but that I'm saying I'm celebrating it. Yeah. Let's all be weirdos. Yeah. So how does this then tie in? Okay. So let's, so I wanted to talk about this specifically because one of the examples that I gave is, so Britney Spears, who we think about her as being very commonplace because now we're, we're 20 years out from when she hit the scene. But when she first arrived, what she did, nobody else was doing. She, when she was introducing all that Valley talk into her singing, the vocal coach could have trained it out of her. They could have taught her to sing in a way that she didn't have that valley talk sounding way. Mm. But instead, they recognized that this was something that made her different. This was something that made her special. And this is what made her weird. So instead of training it out of her, they dialed it up to an 11. Mm -hmm. And that's why so many, she became successful and so many people then copied it afterwards. Mm -hmm. But what makes someone successful is not because... They copied something that's a, a style that's popular. It's because they bring something that's brand new, a brand new yes. point of view. Yep. And they embrace that. Yeah. And it always comes back to, I believe, that we need to embrace our uniqueness and be authentic in what we do. 
and have a point of view because this is why I'm not worried about chat GPT or any of these AI programs because none of them have a point of view. No. You can't you, you ask chat GPT what's better, a hamburger or a hot dog? It can't tell you. And to to be an artist is to have a point of view. You have to have a point so of view. True. Every great artist, and by art, we're saying music, writing, movies, theater, all these things, they have always had a brand new point of view that pushed against what came before it. Mm. So we had Nirvana with the cock rock and immediately pushing up against it, we had Alanis Morissette and these, you know, very empowered women. So everything pushes up against what came before it in the contrasting point of view. So true. So true. With everything that you're sharing, I I think it's really interesting. And I think this is something that if people in the creative industry, and I'm talking to people in my industry here, singers, people who are within the singing voice community, who spend so much time honing in on their skills as singers, as teachers, developing that knowledge base. Question is how much time do you spend learning about this stuff? You know, because I love that you asked this question because people who think that way never get there. No. They just never get there. And I call this sleeping beauty complex. So in the Disney movie, I love all your, your little idiosyncrasies and your little phrases <laughs> and your catch terms. Okay. Sleeping beauties. Okay. I wanted to call it, I actually wanted to call it sleeping beauty syndrome, but apparently that's a real disease. Oh. So sleeping beauty complex, uh, from the Disney movie, sleeping beauty, when they find out that the princess is cursed, they take this little baby, the fairies take the little baby and they bring her to the woods. And you don't see the princess again until she's fully grown. She's like 16 or 17 years old. We don't see her with pimples. We don't see her with braces. We don't see her go through puberty. This is what a lot of creatives, artists, business people, fill in the blank, people want to do who are doing this perfectionist thing is you want to take your creative baby, your business baby, your whatever it is, your vocal technique baby, you want to put it out into the woods and you don't want anyone to hear it or see it or touch it until it's a fully grown adult. And listen, you can't do that. You have to love your baby now. You have to love your baby as it's an adolescent. You have to take it out in the world because you don't know what people are going to resonate with unless you do. Mm -hmm. Because look at Britney Spears. She she had all these weird vocal tics going on. They could have trained that out of her. They could have kept her in the woods until until they taught her how to not do that anymore. Mm. Yeah, that's the thing. You have to start putting it out there, don't you? Because that is so true. You don't know what audiences, what students, whoever it is that you're working with, you don't know until you start putting it out there what part of your work they're going to embrace, what's going to be successful and not. And I heard many years ago that to perfect something, you actually have to be doing the thing. You can't perfect something that's in the woods. You actually have to be doing it to perfect it. And 
when you do hit a speed bump or you hit a wall, you learn from it and you go, well, that that clearly doesn't work and you learn from it and you don't do it again. You don't repeat the problem again. You've learned how to fix it, but you can't do it in the woods. I love that you keep, you said that it's in the woods. Yeah. And it's like in our industry, people think that talent and the skill set is everything. And I used to teach a business module at a performing arts school. I did that for many years. And in the first lesson, I would say to students who they were doing like a diploma, I would say, you know what, that's only 10%. Only 10% of your success is going to be based on your skills and your talent. And the other 90% is what gets you the job. And you can't be what I used to call a door knocker. And that is that you sit at home waiting for someone to knock on the door and go, oh, I hear there's a dancer that lives here. Oh, I hear there's a singer that lives here. Oh, I hear that someone sells art here. Like there's so many aspects. The business side of our what we do is more important than the actual skill itself. Right. Like, so you, I love that you call it door knocker. I call that Rapunzel, Rapunzel style. They're waiting, they're waiting for someone to come Mm. and not only to come, but to like climb that tower and rescue them. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, I also sometimes I teach once a year, I teach a business module to postgraduate students at a university about the business side of the industry. And yeah, they get it so wrong. People spend 10 years having, say, vocal lessons and don't spend any money investing in their careers, like what's going to get them the jobs. Yeah. It's, it's in, in time. And this is where your book comes in handy. People, go and buy this book. You are going to learn so much. Honestly, this is really well needed. I know that you're an artist, but this is for all creatives. So it's The Artpreneur, The Step-by-Step Guide to Making a Sustainable Living from your creativity. And so much of it is around mindset, isn't it, Miriam? It is. So uh, sometimes I like to joke that uh, it's really a self-development book in Mm. in disguise as a a business book for creatives. But that's only because, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, building a business is the best self-development work you'll ever do. Oh, yes. Yeah. You learn so much about yourself too. You learn about your resilience, your tenacity, the value you place on yourself and the belief and that that poverty mindset that a lot of people have that stop them from making money because they don't believe they are worthy or they come from families where having money was evil or having money was so elusive for them. And they carry that belief system throughout their whole lives, don't they? Well, it's very difficult, especially for women and even more so for marginalized group women of color, because we have been taught, uh, I think American women, especially we've been taught not to desire sex and money. 
Like that's kind of part of that Puritanism that is really infects my the culture that I'm from. Mm. But but there is definitely evidence of socialization that it's it's not proper for women to desire power and money and sex, and it, it, money is a big piece of that. Mm. Interestingly enough, the other night I watched Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, when I told my kids. I have two adult daughters that I watched that movie. They were horrified. But I didn't watch it from the aspect of what all the other women were watching it from as like, oh, I wouldn't mind that having that happen to me. <laughs> you know, like it wasn't about that. And it wasn't about that fantasy of meeting the guy with the power and the money. It was what the movie represented. If you watched it from the standpoint of being a strong, independent woman and you watch that movie and the message it's sending out, it kind of aligns with what you said, that women can't have the sex and the money because there is a movie that so many women went and watched that's actually exacerbating that message, I feel. Yeah, I saw a, a joke uh, recently where somebody had said, yeah, if he wasn't a billionaire, it would just be about a creep. <laughs> you know, like it was the fact that he was a billionaire, like yeah. made it okay, made it hot. But if he wasn't a yeah. billionaire, it, it's not hot anymore. Yeah, exactly. If he if he worked in like the the department store down the road or, <laughs> you know, was picking up garbage in the streets of New York. That would just make him a deviant, right? Yeah. yeah. But because he's a billionaire, it's okay. Yeah, exactly. But uh, in winding up, Miriam, what else would you like to share with our listening audience from your program or from your brilliant book that they all need to go out and buy? I'm 100% endorsing your book. It's amazing. Thank you so much. Well, if you like what you heard today, come find me on the Inspiration Place podcast. Um, I'm also giving away chapter one absolutely free. Chapter one is choose to believe. Um, Shulmanart.com forward slash believe or yeah, or get Arpreneur at Arpreneurbook.com. Yeah. And we will share your links in the show notes too, where people can find the book. And in wrapping up, what are any final pieces of advice you would like to share with the listeners? Okay, so I'd love to end um, today's interview the same way I ended the book, which is keep marching forward. There's going to be so many times where you, you think you're taking the right actions, you may not get the results you want, but as long as you're putting one foot in front of the other, not marching in place, and not blaming your boots, not blaming the circumstances, but keep marching forward one foot in front of the other. You will make progress. Fantastic. That is amazing advice. Thank you for that. And look, we wish you all the very best for everything that you, you're up to next and wish you success with your book and your, your program. We will share all your information, your details in the show notes. I really appreciate you taking the time out to spend time here on the podcast and with the listeners. And I hope to reconnect in the future. I actually would like to read the book in greater detail. And I will probably have like 
I didn't even go through all the questions that I had because there's just so many and I'm sure I'm going to have way more in the future and if you would consider some time coming back, it would be amazing to have you here. What you're doing is so valuable. Thank you. It'd be an honor. You're a very dynamic interviewer and I very much appreciate what you did here today. Oh, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Miriam, and good luck and all the very best in the future and look forward to reconnecting with you soon, maybe in New York next month. Definitely. I don't think we would come up for air. We would be like this. Right, right. You like to go to a good restaurant or what, what is it your what is it your guilty pleasure in New York? You like to go to the ballet? You want to go to the museum? Um, actually Broadway. Oh, Broadway. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's my guilty pleasure. Musicals or plays or does it matter? Actually, I've never been to see a play. Really? If there's a play you can recommend that you think is amazing. I've always gone to musicals, but if there's a play. Well, of course, because you're a singer. There's like a real, there's a play that just came out with Jessica Hecht and Laura Linney about women, female friendship. It's supposed to be very good. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Thank you, Miriam. Have a good rest of your evening. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Voice and Beyond. I hope you enjoyed it as now is an important time for you to invest in your own self-care, personal growth and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up feeling empowered and ready to live your best life. If you know someone who will also be inspired by this episode, please be sure to copy and paste the link and share it with them. Or share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. I promise you I am committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one every week. And if you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now. I would also love to know what it is that you most enjoyed about this episode and what was your biggest takeaway. Please take care and I look forward to your company next time on the next episode of A Voice and Beyond.